Hey, and welcome to the latest episode of the Quazcast here on thescore.com. Uh, my name is Jeff Perlman, bringing you the, uh, always trying to bring you the funky, the cool, the flexible, the unique, the uh, quirky from the world of sports. And uh, today's guest, it's just a an absolute, I don't use this word that often in, in my podcast, but an absolute freaking pleasure to have him here because I'm a fan of, I'm a fan of comebacks. I think if you love sports, you love comebacks, you know, from uh, whatever Rocky getting off the mat to beat uh clubber Lang and Rocky three, or, you know, the story of some quarterback or some running back, just getting back on his feet or returning from retirement or whatever. I, I just love comebacks. And uh, Sean Salisbury, I first interviewed in 2012 and for something I do on my website called the Quaz. And I would have to say, and Sean, I say this with all due respect, it was one of the most depressing quazes of my life because you were so down and you had gone through this rough patch at ESPN where your contract went up and you had sort of, I guess you would say, an embarrassing public experience. And and you were just down and you seemed kind of lost and you seemed morose. And and now here we are. It's 2014. You host uh, on Yahoo Sports. You're hosting their their drive time show, 4 to 8 Eastern every every day. And you seem happy, and you seem optimistic, and you're you got your swagger back. I think a little bit. Am I am I off on this? No, oh, Jeff. It's good to be with you. No, you couldn't be more correct. I was in a very low place. You know, when you're were sitting on top of the mountain, and you get you know you get you fall off, and it wasn't a slide. I fell, and over. You know, we don't have to rehash over a silly incident that you know probably the I mean the punishment. I'm not sure if it's the crime, but a lot of that was me doing because I beat myself up, and I. I, I I'm always hard on myself, and it's taken. You're talking about from 2006 to now, the beginning of 2014, for the most of half of 2013 from 2006 is about how long it took me to finally get that swagger back and say, okay, enough's enough. Mm-hmm. And and I and I'm, I'm happy now. I'm not only happy. I've always been happy, but I, you know, you hit rock bottom, and for me, for a while, rock bottom was quicksand, and now it's a trampoline. And it's amazing how when you change your paradigms and to make a shift and change your attitude of what happens and now i'm working at yahoo sports doing their national radio show 48 eastern called prime cut with john granado it's blowing up um you know people all over the country now are starting to 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 ask well when are you getting back in tv so it's 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 back and it's and it was one of those things that i probably needed and i didn't think so at the time but i'm at peace and i'm happy my kids are great Life's good, earning a living again, and I'm back doing what I love to do, and that's talking sports with an unfiltered opinion. And um, I, I couldn't be happier. But you know, when you hit a down time, you have, you almost have to go through a period of suffering a little bit. And I beat myself up, like I said, and others beat me up too. And you'll still get the occasional guy who makes a wise crack, but you know, you got to live with that. But I think I'm more self-deprecating now, still intense and passionate, but a little bit more able to laugh at myself and not take myself too seriously. And um, I love what I'm doing now, and it's just the beginning. The comeback's just started, but I assure you it's far from complete. Well, let me – you know, it's funny. There's this uh, there's this old journalistic technique that I'm actually not going to use, which is someone will say, look, I'm not going to get into details, and then they get into details. And I'm actually not going to get into details. If someone wants to know 
all about what happened to Sean Salisbury. You can Google it. We'll, we'll just say it involved an unfortunate uh, photo and, and probably some bad judgment. And but I'm, but I'm actually fascinated by something because this happens a lot. And it happens a lot in, um, I think, in sports. And it certainly happens a lot in celebrity, which is it seems like we like to treat people like we never make mistakes. You know, like everybody has embarrassing moments. Everybody has embarrassing moments. And the difference is that most of us, when we have them, or most people when they have them, nobody finds out about it. You know, like there are millions of people in this world, just as an example, unrelated to anything you've done, because you didn't do this, who have masturbated at work and got, and someone saw them, or I don't know, like ripped someone off or we like, but it doesn't, it doesn't happen publicly. Exactly. But it seems like where it seems like for some reason, and I don't know if this is the times or how it's always been. We are very anxious to not only pounce on other people's mistakes, but then not let them forget it for a very, very, very long time. And I don't know why this is. Do you, do you, having gone through it a little bit, do you get it at all? You know what, I, I don't get it, but I understand the, put it this way, when you're, when you're as opinionated as I am, there are people out there that look forward to the opportunity to bury you when you make a mistake, and I, and I get that. You know, and it's a take, case in point, look at quarterbacks, for instance. For some reason, we want to tell Peyton Manning that he's not very good because he hasn't beat Tom Brady as many times. If Tony Romo played like, you know, we look at Romo's, played good and played bad at times, but if he played... We don't criticize Drew Brees for a loss outdoors, but we'll kill Tony Romo. Hmm. Brady doesn't catch any abuse if he beats, gets beat, but, Tony, but, but, but Peyton Manning does. So, and, and I understand that. It kind of, Andrew Luck has a poor game last week, but we're still, we don't want to criticize Andrew Luck for some reason. We just won't do it, and he's a special player. And it's the same whether it's media or any kind of celebrity. But I'm going to tell you, a lot of it has to do with the way the guy handles it. Case in point, when Charles Barkley got in trouble and had to go to jail for the, you know, the, the girl that was, Mm-hmm. Yeah, helping him out in the front seat. Charles went to, you know, was drinking, and the cop pulled him over, and he went to Sheriff Joe's place for a couple of days. It's documented. Talk. Charles talked about a late-night TV. It's no secret. But Charles came out and just said it. I screwed up. I did this. Yes, I did this. And we just kind of laughed and forgave him. But I think at times when you go through it for the first time, like what I did with a stupid cell phone picture on my phone over a, mm-hmm. a, a, a mistake and a, a sophomoric error, then I didn't handle it well because I didn't know how to handle it. Well, I t- say people and, or am I going to get protected or do this? And then you fight back and you say something stupid and you get into a battle and then your stupid quotes are in the paper. And before you know it, you've learned something wrong. Cause I'd never been in a situation like that in all my years in media and playing football, but you know, you screwed up and it's okay. Good gracious. I've done far worse than a stupid picture of my phone, right? but after seven years, enough's enough, you know, good gracious. There's, you know, somebody else, there's another train wreck going on and somebody else. And I think I've learned to handle it better. You know, I, when people ask me now, well, man, what about that picture? Make a snide comment. I say, yeah, well, if you had one that looked like that, you'd stuff the front door. <laughs> right. Or man, if I'd had that, you know, you just kind of joke about it. And when you play along with the people kind of laugh and say, the dude's human. Who cares? So, hey, you know what? Bigger things happen. Bad things happen. Good things happen. I don't know what why we're so enamored with it, but we love to build them up. We love to tear them down. And then we love to build them back up again. But I learned a valuable lesson. You learn who to trust. You learn who's there and who isn't. And I, there's no sob story for me. Hey, I lost darn near everything, Jeff. I did. We've talked about this. I mean, from losing all your money to respect, to self-worth, to some of your friends go away because they think, oh, all of a sudden that you're affiliated with them, that that's going to happen to them, all those things. But you know what? A lot of it was how I handled it. I was, I did it wrong. Had I had jumped out in front of it, 
and and made it. I don't mean made a joke that it was a, it was stupid, but I was the only one who got hurt from it. My family, I didn't hurt anybody, and I didn't harm anybody. I harmed myself. But had I jumped out and said, "Yeah, I had a stupid picture of my cell phone. Some third party saw it, and you know what? I took my slap on the hand. Big deal." There's millions of people who do that and just laugh about it, and it's commonplace now. But when I came out, it was a start of, you know, when, when an, an Internet site wants to jump on it. And I don't blame them. Heck, when somebody does something like that in the public, even on my radio show, we go after them. Guy gets a girl pregnant. Ooh, you're married and you got a girl pregnant. We, we kind of, you know, make you know, joke, and it's fodder for late-night Saturday Night Live stuff. And, and, I, and I was part of that as, a, as a, I guess, a celebrity. I don't look at myself like that, but a guy who's in a high-profile job who should have been a better example, who made a, a mistake that turned into a big-time problem. I mean, it, it cost me a job a couple years later. But I'm back at it now, and people got to look around and say, dude, he served his time. I would imagine people look at me now and say, and I look at now, I'm more proud of the comeback and not quitting than I am more disappointed in my mistake, if that makes sense. I knew how, I know where I was and how I wanted to quit, but I'm more proud now and, and feel much better about, man, I, I battled through all the nonsense, and I'm right back and close to where I want to be, as opposed to, you know, I screwed up. I'd go back to ESPN in a second. They treated me like gold for 12 years. It was a mistake. Everybody makes them. Mine got thrown out in public, but I got news for you. I'm never worried about another shoe falling off because I threw my mistake out there. I just didn't handle it as good as I could have. But you know what? After seven years, when you're, kicking, you're fighting back and fighting back, I got a greater appreciation not only for this career, but for celebrities and what they go through and mistakes you make. And I've got a little bit more compassion for guys who make silly mistakes, not beat a girl or mm-hmm. you know, kill somebody driving drunk. But the stupid mistakes that we all make sophomore guy locker room stuff that we carry over into the streets and are with our buddies, the corporate America is not privy to. They, 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 we can't do it. And so I learned that I can't take the locker room to a silly bar and have a shot of tequila and then have a picture, a cell phone picture, and you just can't do it. So, but it never did. It doesn't make me a bad guy. It sure as heck doesn't change what kind of dad I am. It sure as hell doesn't change how much talent I have on the air. And it sure as heck doesn't mean that I'm not going to get back up off the mat and it, 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 it's something that I probably needed to go through, and I'm actually grateful for the adversity. I sure as hell wasn't a couple of years ago. But it's been a long, hard road back, but I'm so grateful and blessed. I'm, I'm happy to be doing what I'm doing. You know, the, uh, the one thing you said that's, that's very interesting, I've talked about this with other, with other uh, writers. I always think the greatest weapon when it comes to confronting public embarrassment is self-deprecation. Like, I always think, I always thought, like, Alex Rodriguez, just as a perfect example, does not understand the value of self-deprecation, you know, and Charles Barkley, who you, who you rightly noted and, and Shaq, another guy, they totally get it. They get how to deflect. And if you are self-deprecating and you can laugh at yourself, even when maybe inside you're crying, it just strikes me as the greatest weapon against situations like that. And I can, you know what, Jeff, it's so true. And, you know, Charles handles it great. Shaq has handled it great. Alex hasn't. I didn't for, for, for a little bit. I, was, I wasn't very good at it either. I'll tell you what happens. Our pride and our ego get in the way. So then we want to lie to cover it. Then we're like, you don't want anybody to think, well, heck, I couldn't have made that mistake. Then your kid suffers at school because somebody says something to them. And then all of a sudden you're in so deep, you're like, oh, hell, what am I going to say now? And so you run and hide. And for me, it was to become reclusive. It wasn't to go out in the media and talk more. Mine was to disappear and feel sorry for yourself and pout like a little bitch and and, and run away instead of stand up, stand tall, and say, yeah, man, I screwed up. And you know what happens is the same guy who's criticizing you comes up to you and say, you know what, dude, you're a, good old, you're, you're a good dude, man. Who cares? You made a mistake. And I can't begin to tell you how many different celebrities, 
or people that have been around are like, Sean, who, who, who the hell cares? Did you make a mistake? Big deal. You're back. You need to be back on TV. I mean, I've gotten from guys like Joe Buck or Troy Aikman and, and Chris Mortensen and Scott Van Pelt. I mean, the list goes on and on. I'm not name dropping, but people that I cared about, they just never left. They just, it's still, it didn't, dude, so what? You made a mistake. Not that they were saying it didn't cost me a lot. But saying enough's enough, man. You can only beat yourself up so much. And just on Twitter for something, you tweet and somebody will come on. And I've actually tweeted back instead of, and I try to tweet all the people who tweet me because I try to be kind to them and let them know that I'm part of the fan base and the rest of it. And somebody will say something rude or snide, and then you'll respond kindly and say, you know what, I did make a mistake. You're right, man. What is, how stupid was I? Or something self-deprecating. And before you know it, they want to follow you and be your buddy. So, you know, you don't have to fight back with everybody. I don't have to defend it anymore. You know, and people are going to, I have to understand that people are going to say stuff my whole career. But damn, like I said, I've done far worse than having a silly picture in my phone over my years. I would think Twitter, wait, Sean, I would think Twitter would be the, the worst place. No? Is it the opposite? Well, no, it, it can be bad. But <laughs> the truth of the matter is, of the of 100 tweets I get, 99 of them are all good. Every now and then you'll get the guy who. I got one two days ago that says, oh, yeah, you did. How's there? or maybe it was two weeks ago. Oh, man, I, what a bummer. Too bad you're not there. You're yesterday's news. How's that cell phone picture? You know, you'll get that stuff. But right. the truth is, the, the, while the people that are doing it by self-deprecation, but the other part of it is people have absolutely no idea. And I, I talked to, we talked to Jeff Van Gundy on our show the other day talking about celebrity and, and ripping people in the, in the media and social media about stuff. And he made a great point. And, and it's true that people don't realize, and I even think about this now on my show or when somebody goes through something similar, is while we can give them a little hard time, but enough's enough because the collateral damage that gets caused, Jeff, is the damaging part. I'm a big, I'm tough enough to handle. I'm a 50-year-old guy. I've, I've, I've been hitting the mouth on the field. I've been hitting the mouth off it. But I've, I've, I've hit rock bottom and lost everything, and I've been on top of the mountain. But he's right, is that the collateral damage, when somebody makes a mistake, to constantly beat down. I mean, after enough because we're, 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 you know, we've seen people' lives change over this, and people lose their lives and get to the point where they're they're so so depressed that we, we don't see them anymore. So I'm cognizant of that. I'm cognizant of stupid mistakes, but the self-deprecation and the ability to admit your mistake and jump out in front of them and say, you know what, man, I, I I screwed up, or I took a PED, or I had a cell phone picture, or I, you know, or I did this, or I made this mistake. If if you will, I think most people want to forgive you because they're sitting there thinking, "Damn, that could have happened to me at my office at at and at and t or my office at, at at Google or my office." And I'll tell you what bothers what I'd like at some point is when you Google my name, I'd love it, and I have still not Googled it in, in a decade. That's probably a good idea. Yeah, but but you Google my name, and it, the the funny thing about it, see just your response there, probably a good idea. <laughs> now think about this. This was where I get pissed. Think about this. I've put over fifty kids through college with the help of my foundation, for kids who didn't have a pot to piss in that have a chance to go to school and graduate. I've raised three children. I've, I've, I've been a great son. I've made mistakes. I've played four years. It started at SC and played 10 years of football, not getting drafted. I'm not bragging, patting myself on the back, but I think about the, the course of my life, 12 years at ESPN, fight back. And you know the number one thing they still have up is a stupid cell phone picture from 2006. Yep. Now, to me, and whether it's, it's complete bullshit, enough. When that, when that, that part, I'm thinking, good gracious, what, what do you got to do? I mean, now I'm on a show, but the lead page is oh, stupid stuff. I mean, are you, really, when, when, when's, when's enough enough to where they change that? But you know what? You keep plugging and keep putting good things up, 
and good things happen. So that's about as angry as I get at it now. It's like, oh, yeah, Sean, I Googled you. Well, right. yeah, what'd you see? I'll bet you it's had a cell phone picture comment. Well, big deal. Well, what else have you done in your life, Sean? Well, I'm a father of three, which was my biggest thing, and I raise kids and I work, but you know, they, you'd make it think like that was the way that your whole life has gone. But you know what? I've, I am happier than I've been, more at peace than I've been, I guess is the best way to say it, in, in well, in good seven years. Fortunately, my kids are healthy and life's good, my man. You know, Sean, I want to say, um, this is a non sequitur, but I have to say you gave me one of my greatest football memories, which is when I was a, uh, I think I was a junior at the University of Delaware, and you were a Vikings quarterback, and I attended an Eagles game. I think it was an Eagles game, and you were uh, you were starting for the Vikings, and um, you were replaced by a Delaware Blue Hen named Rich Gannon. And I, it makes me very happy to say, Sean, that the University of Delaware has had two quarterbacks start in the Super Bowl, and the University of Southern California has had zero. And I just thought I'd mention that to you because it makes me happy. Hey, <laughs> teammate of Rich's for a while, and Flacco kicked butt too, and it was it was very nice. And I'll never forget in that game, Seth Joyner made one of the great plays of all time on a screen pass and he still gives me a hard time to this day with one of the great plays but that was about as brutal a team as you'll play against reggie white god oh, yeah. rest his soul jerome brown god rest his soul andre waters eric allen seth joiner byron evans they were brutal to play against but we had a lot of fun and with randall cunningham and the group it was it was a fun hard-fought game but a very difficult place to play in the old vet it was a blast let me ask you this you so you uh you played at usc started usc on draft in 87 then uh you jump Seahawks, Colts, uh, Blue Bombers, won the Grey Cup in 88, Vikings, Oilers, Chargers. You've been in football for a long time. You've been in broadcasting for a long time. How do you still find it interesting? And what I mean is, before you answer, like, all right, so I know the names change, but like someone's going to win the game. Someone's going to lose the game. There's going to be a guy who's really fast, who we all talk about, who has 4-2 speed. There's going to be a quarterback with the best arm I've seen since Dan, since Dan Fouts. There's going to be a defensive end or who reminds you of Reggie White. Like the narratives are relatively familiar. So what keeps it interesting for you? Uh, I love it. And that's the truth. I do it for free, but I don't tell my boss that. Um, is you, you hit part of it. As you said, the names will change, but it's similar stuff, and that's just it. The names do change. And although it's similar, let's, let's think, Jeff, in just five years, what's changed this game. We got quarterbacks now almost running for 1,000 yards. We got a quarterback who threw 55 touchdowns and for almost 5,500 yards this year. We've got rule changes now that have, that have we, we've pussified the game. We got it now that can you imagine if Dan Marino was playing where you couldn't touch him? Can you, I mean, not saying these quarterbacks aren't good, but the Troy Aikmans, I mean, rule, and, and I'm telling you, Peyton Manning's 55 touchdowns is not going to last. That's going to be broke. And I don't know when, but it'll be broke soon. I mean, we've got to the point now where you breathe on a quarterback, so that's changed. So we're, we're seeing a complete shift. We've gotten to the point now, when I was in a league on first down and goal at the two-yard line, we were in jumbo formation with three tight ends. Now they're in the shotgun at the two-yard line with an empty backfield, five wides in the, in the gun. And so that's changed. We've seen a guy like Chip Kelly run an offense that nobody would, would, would find absurd. Everybody would find absurd. And now the guy takes the team to the playoffs. We got a Michael Vick who starts in and no guy. Uh, Nick Foles comes out of nowhere and throws two picks all year long. We got Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. The dynasty continues. Brady's got a roster full of guys named me and you. And he's taken them to the AFC Championship game with the chance to go to the Super Bowl. And if he wins this Super Bowl, I, I believe he's the best we've ever had. So you can look at the names, and we got tight ends that run like receivers. we got running backs. We, I mean, so for me, the, the, the intrigue is 
that every play there's something different. It's a new guy. It's a new coach. It's a new hit. It's what rules next. Or how in the world do you look at college football and hit a 109-yard return against Nick Saban and the most prepared guy in the world, and his team was unprepared? That's why. Like anything else, like the stock market, just like football, every single game, there's something that goes on unique. Yes, it's a different body. Yes, it's still 100 yards long and 52 and a third wide. But the spectacular plays that these guys make, that normal human beings sit in their living room, their jaws, and even former players, when your jaw's hanging down to your ankle, you say, how did he make that throw? He can't make that throw. And then you've got a Johnny Manziel who adds a new excitement in the draft and new coaches and guys that we've never heard of get their chance and go to the playoffs. I mean, to me, it's the, my, my love for this and my passion for teaching football and broadcasting football is uh, outside of my kids and my family. I love nothing more, the, 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 the thrill. And I go to movies and I'll miss games and all that. But the thought of every day, like this weekend, who doesn't want to watch these four teams? My gosh, you better have a good supply of body bags if you're going to the 49er Seahawks game. I mean, they're going to beat each other's damn brains in. And they're going to tell you and talk about it the whole way through. Then you're going to go watch Peyton, or they're going to play the early game, but you're going to watch Peyton and Tom before. And you're going to watch two of the four guys that belong on Mount Rushmore playing against each other with all kinds of sidebars and intrigue and side stories. It's crazy. So wow. I love it because not only is it what I do, it's in my DNA. Do you, do you feel like the, uh, I mean, you, you call it the quote unquote pussification of the game, which is a great, <laughs> which is a great terminology for it. Do you, do you feel like, um, all right, is it, is it more accurate to say that if you took a Marino or a Dan Fouts and put them in 2014, that they would be throwing for 60 touchdown passes? Or if you took a Peyton Manning or a Tom Brady and put them in 1984, that they would struggle compared to how do they play today? No, I think that you take the special ones, they're going to be good anywhere. It's like when people say, could, could Michael, Jordan, Michael Jordan played when you know, Oscar Robertson did? Of course he could. Could Oscar have made it in this league? Yeah, of course he can. The great ones can. It's the tweeners. I mean, average guys may become better. Average quarterbacks may become better if they think, man, can't breathe on the guy. Maybe he gets better and, and he's making $3 million as a backup and he knows that he can't get hit very often. And when I say pussification of the game, I'm not talking about the players. Matter of fact, you go talk to Troy Aikman, or you talk to the current players now, most of those quarterbacks will tell you that they don't like the rules either. Right. They, the, most of them will tell you. Now, I'm all about safety, staying away from head injuries, but we're going to have more knees blown out and ankles blown out than we've ever – there's more injuries now than we've ever had. Now, I understand we're trying to guard against concussions, but head injuries are still going to happen. It's just the nature of a guy getting twisted sideways and a guy falling and another guy ducks his head to catch a ball. They're still going to happen. Mm-hmm. But I understand what Commissioner Goodell and everybody's trying to do to safety. But we are on the verge now. I mean, we are close to losing integrity on the game on Sundays. Referees are involved in every call. We're talking more about officials than we are about the quarterbacks. I mean, simple plays that you should not miss, we're missing at times. And it's a tough job. But then a guy will hit a quarterback just clean, and because it was a vicious hit but legal, I don't mind illegal hits being penalized and fined. A vicious hit that's legal is now getting fined. I mean, kicked out of games or penalized on a Sunday, and on Wednesday getting thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollar fine. It's a vicious game. We can't take away the legal vicious hits. I mean, that, that, when they say target, what do you mean target? Every defensive back targets a receiver. His job is to knock the shit out of him when he catches the football and separate him from the football. That's his job. And if he does it with a vicious shot to the torso with his shoulder pad, you can't penalize him for it. I mean, you just can't. It's a legal hit, but we do. So the pussification part of the game doesn't come from players can't handle it. 
it comes from we're getting so protective now. It's like, wait a minute now, are we going to start getting to the point where we play 11 on 11, but that one guy in the pocket, we put a red jersey on him so we don't let him get hit. So, yes, I believe Marino could throw 55, 50 touchdowns, and I believe Manning could have thrown 48 touchdowns when Dan did when he was in 84. So it's not that. It's, a, it just, it, it's a great equalizer. The defense has no shot most of the time. Think about it. Every rule we have is set up for the offense to succeed. Every rule. So the game is, is, I'm not going to say it's easier because these guys are bigger and faster, but I can tell you this, when you're standing back there knowing that they're going to protect you, you can deliver the ball a little bit different. So I, I never take the credit away from guys making money or getting paid. These players have earned it, and it's not the players. I just think that we're getting so close to being so protective. Now the referees can't help it. A guy gets close, and they just want to blow the whistle, throw the flag, because that's what they're trained to do now. And I think we're taking for granted exactly what this game is. It's vicious, it's nasty, it's mean, it's physical, and it's not for the faint of heart. We've got to protect players from illegal hits, but we cannot take away the integrity of the game and flag vicious legal hits because that's not fair to the defensive players. And what they're going to eventually do is say, oh, you're going to flag me anyway and, and find me on Wednesday of the next week? Then I'm going to make sure I get my money's worth so that quarterback doesn't beat me three weeks from now when we play him our second time of the year in the division. And his knee's going to be in his his knee's going to be out the back of his out the back of his hamstring, and I'll make sure they're playing the backup. Believe me, I know how some of these guys think. And if they're going to rob Peter, you're going to pay Paul. I assure you. Well, isn't there isn't there almost like a, a need for an acceptance that there's only so much? You know, people keep talking about the buzzword, and you see it like it actually st- has really started to annoy me. You see people who know absolutely nothing about football talking about how the the game needs to become safer, and I actually. Obviously, uh, the the concussions in particular is heartbreaking. But it seems to me, it seems to me, Sean, that there's only so much you can do. Like it's almost like maybe people just need to accept that this is a really dangerous game, and if you want to play it, play it. But you are gonna, you know, there's a very good chance you're gonna get hurt. And if you don't want your kids to play it, or you don't want to play it, don't play it. But there's, it seems like there's only so much more that can be done. You cannot, there's no way to get rid of the head injuries. It is impossible, it seems like, in football. There's no way you're going to get rid of ACL injuries. Or It just seems like, at some point, we just need to say, you know what, it's dangerous, period. Yeah, and agreed. And while I'm all about, we can't have the guy who leads with the crown of his helmet every week and tries to injure somebody that's trying to hurt people in purpose. We've got to get those guys standing on the sidelines or out of the league, yes. But there's not, most guys aren't like that. They may get a dirty hit once in a while, but most guys want to hit you clean and play good, hard, solid football and do it the right way. And it is dangerous, and you're exactly right. See, we are on the verge of that now. We are on the verge where we get to the point and say, you know what, guys? And I know why the lawsuits with head injuries and what goes on and concussions, I get that. But if you go to a quarterback or a wide receiver right now and say, hey, dude, we're going to fit you with a 15-pound helmet, and that will prevent concussions, do you think he's going to wear it? Right. Hell no, he's not going to wear it. He doesn't want all that weight on his head. I, no quarterback wants it. We're looking for ways we can cut pads down as opposed to put them on. Until this past year, they were fine. And, I mean, guys were wearing no thigh pads, no knee pads, no hip pads. They were sliding football pants on with no pads in them. Well, now they, they say they're fine and guys that don't have knee pads or thigh pads in and the rest of it, but they don't want to wear those. You see these guys with pads that are above their knees, like they're, they're basically long shorts. So here we are adding rules for safety, but guys don't want to wear the equipment. So you're never going to get a quarterback or a wide receiver wearing a 20-pound helmet. They're not going to do that. It it slows their decision-making down, the rest of it. We're about the extent. I don't know what they can do inside helmets. I'm not a technology guy. Me telling you how technology works with a helmet for safety is the same as some person who's never played telling me how bad or good the impact is on the field. 
I'm not saying people don't know and see the vicious hits, but you're right until you've been the guy that's played 10 years like me without an anterior cruciate ligament, or you're the guy like Troy Aikman who's had concussions and been beaten ahead, and, and these guys every single game you see in stars. And I'm not saying they don't know, but we can't have people telling us, well, you can't do that when, when they've never done it. And I always have a little bit of a problem when somebody who's making rules or doing it in a coat and tie, and some of them have played, but the ones that haven't played are setting rules for those that are playing. Maybe we need to get a committee of people that actually, the former players, like a Marcus Allen or something, and get a committee together and help them be on the rules committee because they went through the good and the bad of it. They went through the hardcore hits and now the transformation. Maybe we got to do that so we get a taste. Not saying people that broadcast it had to play it because, heck, Al Michaels is as good as it ever gets. Joe Buck, they never played it, but they broadcast it as good as you'll ever hear. I'm talking about for the safety and the integrity of the game, talking about we got to stop this. No, we really don't have to stop legal vicious hits. That's what you signed up for, legal vicious hits to the rib cage. It happens. We, it's getting to the point where you've got about a six-inch circle where you can hit a quarterback. And you hit him anywhere else, and we're getting a flag. And I'm an offensive guy. Aikman came on my show the other day, so the say he goes, here, I'm a quarterback, and he doesn't like a lot of the rules either. He's all about safety, but all, not all about the, the point where we're, where we're challenging the integrity of the game. And, so, and, and, and I feel that way. That being said, it's the best game, best team sport on the planet. It's making money hand over fist, nine, ten billion bucks a year, whatever it is. But, like hockey, the fights don't go away because fans like them. It's a vicious physical game. In football, if we take this away, we are on the verge. Nobody wants to watch us play flag football on Sundays. They want to watch us play tackle football, not flag football, tackle football. And it's a vicious game. And we're at the point now where you just go, hey, man, you know, maybe this is going to get to the point where they're going to make people that sign new contracts give away their ability to sue somebody over a head injury or something like that in the kind. I'm paying you $20 million. You know the risk? Here. You, 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 you're going to sign it away, dude. You, don't, you can't sue me if you get a concussion. Now we go out and play vicious and good, solid rules, but allow these guys to play. That's why there's only 53 guys on a team, and it's a very select group because a lot of guys can laugh at it and say it and play it in their front yard, but when it comes to nut-cutting time, and when, it, when, when it's, it's all fun and games until somebody punches you right smack dab in the face every day on practice and every day in a game, that people all of a sudden say, whoo, that's not like a bar fight where I get hit twice. I get hit 47 times. And that's the difference. Why, um, you've been around long enough that you actually may be able to answer a question I've never had satisfactorily, satisfactorily answered for me, which is considering the, uh, considering the violence of the NFL, considering the average career is about 2.5 years, and considering that Major League Baseball, uh, professional basketball and professional hockey all have guaranteed contracts. Why does the, uh, why is the NFL, uh, Players Association and the players, why have they not fought harder for guaranteed contracts? You know, I, I, I think that we all say the same thing, and they can cut you, and boom, you're not getting paid. You sign a contract in basketball, you get cut one year, you get paid for five more. Uh, and it's the most vicious game. I know the injury thing comes into the guaranteed, and now the big-time players will get upfront money and guaranteed mm-hmm. money. You know what I think as a, as, a, as a players association, and I know they're doing their best, but I, I, there's no question that we've sold ourselves out at times. There's, there's no for the, for the immediate money and the immediate dollar right now. There's no question. Because once you're out of the league, I asked Eric Dickerson on my show the other day, I said, if you weren't a Hall of Famer, would the NFL care about you? He goes, they wouldn't give a damn about me. You know, they don't give a damn about you. He said the reason they care about me is because I went to the Hall of Fame. Eric said it on the show two, three days ago. Right. And, and he's right. And I'm not saying that Commissioner Goodell doesn't care and doesn't have a big heart. I love Roger Goodell. I think he's done a great job policing the league. And I, there's some things I disagree with. I think he, he does an excellent job. But we we're, we're 
with, with this situation for the NFL Players Association, you go back and forth, go back and forth. The guys that have the money are a little bit more powerful, and players give in. You know why? Because if the owners miss a season, most of them made their money doing something else. They can afford it. Most players are like, I mean, everybody thinks the Manning-Brady contracts are the quarterback contracts. Most players don't make that kind of money. Right. Hell, most of, those guys are, most of those guys are mid-road money guys. And then when you make too much money, if you're a mid-road guy, they cut you. So they don't have to pay you, and they bring in a younger guy who can do the same thing for cheaper price. You know what I find the most evil? I'll tell you what I find the absolute most evil is they'll sign these guys. Like, I knew a guy. I wrote a book about the Cowboys a bunch of years ago and, uh, from the Jimmy Johnson era, and they had a defensive back named Clayton Holmes. And uh, Clayton came from a horrible, horrible background in Florence, South Carolina. But he signed his big, whatever, you know, two-year, whatever point, whatever, million-dollar contract the guy had literally never written a check before. Like a lot of guys who enter the NFL, they're young. They've never written a check before. And he thinks he's a millionaire, you know, and you sign these, you see these guys, you'll see like so-and-so player has signed a, has agreed to a five-year, $40 million deal with the Kansas City Chiefs. And of course, it's not guaranteed. So he plays one year and they don't like him. They cut him. And it seems like a lot of it is just playing to their egos. Like, all right, we're going to sign you to this big contract. Then you can brag to all your friends about your big fat contract. But it's utterly meaningless. That's why these guys now are getting. That's why I want to. You sign. Heck, I don't care. Put my ego and pride aside. If I sign a five-year, forty million dollar deal, I'd like thirty million of it in the first two years. Then you get your money. And if they decide to cut you at the back end, you're like, well, okay, whatever. I got mine. So I, I think that we, as a PA, and all of us are involved because some of us who you know have had a say in it in the past or what have you, we're for instant gratification. It's like, man, the training camp's coming. What if we hold out and if we, we walk and we're locked, we're, then we're locked out. And, man, my paycheck's not coming in. But, boy, the owner's still going to get paid even though, I mean, uh, they, they made their money doing something else. They're a little bit older. They got their money. Players panic. And to stand tall as a union, it's tough to do sometimes for a lot of players. And players care about themselves. and They care about money right now. They don't care about benefits because they never think their careers are going to end and they never think it's going to matter to them until they're out of it. Then five years later, nobody wants their autograph. They don't have medical care and their signing bonus is no longer there. And they're wondering, well, dang, yeah, we should have fought for that. And we're always doing it. Oh, we should have. But we're, at some point, we've got to get to the point where we'd be willing to sign guaranteed contracts if, you, if you're willing to tell us that, that you want us to sign something, a waiver that says, you're not going to sue me if you get hurt and we cut you or what have you. There's got to be some give and take, but we there's no question when it comes to the negotiation, the owners have dominated that most of the time. Yeah, the problem is at age 22, you are just dumb and short-sighted, and at age 32, it's too late. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, and you never think it's going to end. And yeah. At 32, you're just getting your life started, and, you, and, you, and your career, you're too old for your career anymore. Yeah. So you never think it's going to end, and you want the money now, and then when it does end, you're like, damn, I didn't think it was going to end that fast. And if you're lucky to play 10 years, some of us were lucky to get that far. Most don't get that far. Not everybody, everybody looks at Brady, Manning, and Breeze and said, oh, that's the way it is. No, that's the way it is for a handful of dudes. The rest of the dudes are fighting and scratching when their career's over or begging for a job and looking for money. And that's, that's just the facts. Right. When did you realize? So you were, a, uh, you were a stud at USC. You were a stud in high school. You threw, in the NFL, you, you threw 18 touchdowns, 19 interceptions, but you lasted forever. And I kind of wonder, when did you realize you were not going to be a star in the NFL? Well, you know, when you don't get drafted, I mean, if you go back and look at Mel Kuyper's book, before I blew out my knee, I was the number one ranked quarterback in my class, and they had me targeted as a first-rounder. Blew out my knee once and shredded again two years later the same knee, and it wasn't fully healthy when I went through the combine and tested, so I didn't get drafted. So I actually had to – you went from being a you know Mr. Star in high school and you know highly recruited guy in college to having to fight and scratch to make a team. And I didn't I, – I, you know what? Until the day I was done – 
I never thought I wasn't going to be. Wow. I didn't. And I mean, you know, you could look back and I, I can say that, you know, I'd played well enough to earn a job this year and that year and this year. And then the, somebody else beat me out this year and that year. And you never got to put it this way. Had I been a second round pick, a couple of those interceptions wouldn't have put me on the bench. I'd have been able to fight through it because they spent money on me. And I'm not saying I didn't make mistakes. And the reason I was able to hang around, I could have hung around longer. When I went to ESPN, two straight years, Denny Green and Brian Billick called me in Minnesota and offered me contracts to come back. And I'd left. It had been 10 years. So I could have, as a backup, if I'd accepted the role and didn't go into television or radio, I could have played six more. I didn't retire because I was beat up or what have you. It was time. I, I, I kind of lost some of my love for it. I wanted to get in the broadcast business. And I walked and walked. But Denny and Brian, I remember Brian called me up and said, you still got magic in that arm, dude. We need you. Brad Johnson got hurt one year, then Randall Cunningham. And so for two years in a row, they called me, and I turned it down both times. And that's not to pat myself on the back, but I could have. If you're a smart quarterback and you're a team player and you're prepared and can win games as a backup, which I did, but can also save games as a backup, which I did, but I can also go 15 games and not see the field, which I did, and start a few games, I could have, I could have played till I was 38 years old. I could have milked seven more years out of it. But I was ready to go on because when you lose the, the fun – and didn't feel like it. It's nobody's fault but mine. It was time to move on. But some of these guys, I, I never, until, the, until I quit, I always thought that I'm going to get that one break and they're gonna, I'm going to be the starter and I'm going to have a monster season and I'm going to get a big contract. And I think you have to think like that. As a backup, you've got to prepare to play, be the starter. And as a starter, you've got to be prepared to be a, a leader and to go win games, and that's what matters. Stats never mattered to me. I was reliable, and they knew it, and that helped me to survive in the league because they could count on me and I was prepared. But I never once didn't think I was going to be a star. I accepted my role. But every time I played, I thought, this is going to be the game that takes me to the next level and keeps convincing them. And I think you have to think that way with a sense of arrogance and a sense of swagger in order to carry you through in this league. There's too many good players, too many good players. And in order to keep your job, you leave your glove out on the mound, somebody else comes out and gets it. So my philosophy was until I walked, I'm not Warren Moon or Dan Marino, of course, but I always thought I was. You have to. <laughs> right. I think you have to. I mean, if you're Josh McCown, you got to think you're Cutler, don't you? I yeah. mean, you got to. And he played played great this year. So to me, I, I you accept your role, but you're always striving. And I, I mentioned to David Shaw, the Stanford coach, yesterday. We had him on. I said, David, how do you sustain this at Stanford? It's, it's amazing. He said, Sean, I, that's a bad word for us. We don't use that word. I said, what do you mean? He said, sustain. He said, we improve. So if we are ten and eleven and one or ten and two in a BCS bowl game, we didn't win the national title. We're improving," he said. "We don't sustain. We don't want to sustain ten and two. We want to sustain twelve and zero and thirteen and zero. And he makes a great point. And I think you have to do that. And that's what helped me to survive ten years of not getting drafted and playing without an anterior cruciate ligament because I always believed that I was one play away from being a star as a quarterback. Never happened. But you know what? I'm okay with it because it carved out another niche for me. Well, what was? Let me ask you specifically. Like you mentioned, Warren Moon. Let's just take uh, now in hindsight. What was the difference? Because obviously. I always think it's funny when I hear fans say like, like Mark San Mark Sanchez sucks. I was like, all right, he doesn't suck. He's one of the hundred, well, not even a hundred. He's one of the sixty best quarterbacks in the world. Okay, he doesn't suck. He may not be your choice, and he's not that good and whatever, but he doesn't suck. And I always think like, so here, you know, in the NFL, we have whatever the sixty best quarterbacks in the world. What is the difference specifically between? Warren Moon and Sean Salisbury. Like, what makes him a Hall of Famer, and what makes you a journeyman with a long career? Right. Um, you know, it's funny. And real quick, when you say the guy who says, "Oh, he sucks," it's that's the guy who's sitting in his mom's basement with one <laughs> hand on his Johnson, the other on his keyboard, who's never taken a snap in his life. Okay, because the the person who has gone through it, 
I would never say that Sanchez sucks. I say he's having a tough time. People don't realize not only it's tough enough to get there, but to stay there. It's brutal. And in New York, how, I mean, Mark, if you're not perfect every week and don't play like Phil Simms did when he was with the Giants, you, I mean, they're intelligent fans. They'll, they'll bear, they'll, you've got to have thick skin to play in that city. That's why I think he's got the toughest job in the planet, being a first-round quarterback from USC, playing in New York and not winning. Though Those people expect they're used to Yankee baseball and they're used to championships, and they should be. Mm-hmm. So people that say that, you almost got to smirk because it, it's kind of comical. Now, the difference between... Tom Brady and me, or Warren Moon and me, is a few things. Um, if you say if you line up and put us in shorts and throw the football, you're not going to see much difference. You're not going to see much difference. Matter of fact, if you run Peyton Manning in a pair of shorts and Carson Palmer, Palmer throws. You're going to say, "Oh, that that guy that plays in Arizona, that dude." If you take the jersey names off and don't know their name, you're going to say that guy throws the ball way better than number 18 does. Right. Oh, that's Manning. Oh, that's right. That's Peyton Manning. Physically, there's not a whole lot of now. Hey, to have a Jay Cutler or Matt Stafford arm, eh, Cal, Colin Kaepernick, that's just you know they're blessed with the they're blessed with the Randy Johnson fastball. Other quarterbacks are blessed with the Greg Maddox fastball with more accuracy. You know, eighty eight, ninety as opposed to ninety eight, ninety nine, a hundred. So from a different scene like Warren Moon and I as a teammate, there's a few things. Is Warren Moon emotions never got to him, and just with him, I could never tell if Warren Moon threw five touchdowns or five picks. Mine, you could tell. You could tell. Now, early in my career, you couldn't tell. When I was at high school and college, I was cool as a cucumber. But at times, I let, for me, I let one play affect the next three. Warren Moon didn't. The ability, number one, to get over crappy, crappy plays, because they happen. Great players like Moon, Montana, Marino, Brady, Breeze, they don't let it fester. They don't carry it with them to the next series. I did at times after I got hurt. You start your journeyman. You want to make sure you're impressing. You get to the point where you every play starts to drag you down. You got to make every play, and I I survived it. But in order to be a solidified, a constant starter, I allowed those things. I lost a little confidence, and I thought I didn't get drafted, and you lose a little confidence. So pulling that trigger was a little different, and to get over bad plays is huge. Secondly, great quarterbacks take ordinary players and make them extraordinary. Brady takes ordinary players, makes them extraordinary. I didn't do that. Warren Moon could, could do that. Dan Marino can do that. And their demand of the player to get themselves ready is different. Now, I'm a good leader, and I was smart and studied, but there's just a difference. There's an it factor. I had that it you know, up until my sophomore year in college when I got hurt, and somewhere along the line, I lost that it factor. But Dan, those guys, Warren, has that it factor. Extraordinary and make it the ordinary and make it extraordinary. And the biggest one is you better have the balls of a burglar, my friend. Mm-hmm. And great coaches and great players, when the temperature of the game goes up, their blood pressure goes down. Most of us, whether it's myself or backups or guys that start some and, or aren't superstars, guys that are starters in the league but not great starters, can they throw it? Yeah. Hell yeah, they could throw it. The backup in New Orleans can throw it probably as good as Drew can in shorts and a, and a T-shirt. But the accuracy and all those things, accuracy and those things you work on, that's the obvious. I'm talking about those intangible things that are it factors, is the temperature of the game goes up when you're choking on your own spit. You're choking on your own spit. The, 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 the immortal guys, the Bradys of the world, their blood pressure goes down. And I don't mean just joking about it. I'll bet you if you took their pulse, their pulse is calmer than when the game's normal. For guys like us, the, pulse, the temperature goes up. The pulse goes up, and that's why there's something unique about those. So 
the calmness to get over bad plays, to take ordinary players, make them extraordinary. If you're extraordinary, to keep them there. And to when it is nut-cutting time and something's got to happen, the ability to, to block everything out and to keep your blood pressure down and your temperature down and to play, I call it pup. It's, it's poise under pressure. And the great ones know how to do that. And some of us, at times we could do it, but couldn't sustain it game in and game out, year in and year out. That's why, you know, Tom Brady's had 50 of these type of games where he comes from behind. Look at Andrew Luck. He's got it 11 or 12 times already in two years. He's taken a team from behind in the fourth quarter and won a game. I hate being cliche. I hate being cliche, but I'm going to throw a cliche question at you. Does, uh, does Peyton Manning have it? Hell yeah, he has. He does, yeah. And that's just it. Here's a guy. If, if, if the guy had won one more Super Bowl, I mean, it's amazing how because he's been beaten in the Brady era and Brady played, somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose. Right. I ask people this. I say, let me ask you, do you think Tony Dungy would not have a, a Super Bowl ring? And the Indianapolis Colts would never have won five games if Manning wasn't on their roster. Case in point, he gets hurt one year. Jim Caldwell, the year before, has got him in the Super Bowl as the coach when Tony leaves at 14-2 and two or whatever it was. The next year, Peyton Manning gets hurt. You know what the record was? 2-14. and 14. With Curtis, with, 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 with a, a backup quarterback as a quarterback, Manning doesn't play a lick. They, they, they're 2-14. and 14. Yeah. So you give me great coaches with bad players, that coach becomes the great coach, gets fired. You give me great players with an average coach, the coach will get a contract extension. If you give me Brady and Belichick, the best in the business, well, then you got a dynasty. So that's not a cliche question. It's the fact about people killing Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning is a, is a victim of his own success. He has set this bar so high that we expect him to win a Super Bowl every year. Can't do it. Can't do the numbers the guy puts up. And, oh, he's great in the regular season. Well, he's still got a Super Bowl ring. And go, go ask Marino and Boomer Esiason and all these great quarterbacks how tough that was to get. Warren Moon. That, that's not easy to get. But we can't. the standard is Brady and Montana. Well, yeah. How many of those we had? Two. And, and eight, we don't have many of those. So I've, I'm fascinated at the, at the criticism Manning takes over what he's done. I say look at the franchise without him. Denver doesn't, Denver's not in the AFC championship game if the backup's the quarterback there. Right. If he's in Indianapolis and Luck's not there, I'm talking about before Luck came to the league, the Indianapolis Colts never make the playoffs without Peyton Manning. Unless, of course, they traded for a Brady or a Breeze. With their roster, while Peyton was there, never sniffed the playoffs. So it depends on how you look at it. Glass half full, glass you know, glass half empty. Right. I think he's a, he's in he's in the Mount Rushmore quarterbacks. Manning belongs right there. He's in that team picture. He's got his head carved out at Mount Rushmore of the four best of all time. And if he wins a Super Bowl this time, c- coupled with his numbers, Montana, Elway, him, Brady, it's a four way fist fight. You don't put Unitas. You, you don't put Unitas on that. I love Johnny Unitas and some of the great thrills I had. The two times I got to sit and talk football with Johnny for an extended period of time, but I didn't get to see him play every day. I see him on film. I'm talking, when I judge him, I can't judge Otto Graham or Y.A. Tittle. Mm-hmm. I see him on tape and what everybody says. And Johnny would be in that category from somebody who got people who got to watch him play. Right, right. I didn't get to see Johnny at his best, so that would be unfair of the guys I've watched, covered, played against, or played with. Those four guys I named belong on Mount Rushmore, in my opinion. Why do you think so many ex-athletes are really bad announcers? And wait, before you answer, let me say, like, I feel like very often I'll be watching some highlight, and it'll be, you know, the they'll, they'll turn it over. They'll say, all right, Shaq, what do you see here? And he'll say, well, you got the center, and he passes it over to the guard, and then the guard takes a real pretty jump shot, and he hits it. Like, it seems like few and far in between, and I feel like you're one of the good ones. No, like, is it harder than one would think to take the experience that you had as an actual player and then carry it 
almost like a computer program in your head into the analysis that you give watching a tape of someone else doing it? Most guys can't, and here's why. Is a lot of guys will put every warm body on the planet that retires on TV without any experience. Now, I, for me, and I appreciate the comment, I took it, I, I took it serious. I prepare like, like, like I'm a backup trying to make a team, and it's, car, it's served me well. A lot of the guys go on there, and they think, oh, they're turning on a camera, and I've sat next to them. And you'd be shocked, Jeff, at how many former players only know their position. Wow. I've sat, where it's like they don't know what else is going on around them. Mm-hmm. If you're a pass rusher, some guys just know pass rush, and that's what they talk about. And then they'll give you a lot of, of, of verbiage and crap and can't pronounce the names. It comes down to simple. Did you prepare? Did you, know, you can't read the newspaper and then go on TV and think you could do it. Mechanics, cameras, all those things. And we just throw them out there, throw them into fire and you know, throw you on countdown or throw you on a Monday night preview show or a Sunday morning show because you were a good football player. More often than not, those guys aren't very good. Now, some some start to evolve and get better and better. They learn the mechanics of TV. Some guys try to talk too much and they try to get 15 minutes of information, and they only got 45 seconds a hit on live television. And so, but to me, it's preparation. And guys are afraid to give the true opinion. They're afraid. They're afraid that if they criticize the guy, he's going to get mad. Well, if a guy throws five picks, he can be my buddy. I've criticized my buddy. He throw five picks. He had a shitty game. I've had plenty of them. I know how to break down a guy throws picks. It happens. Now, I'm not going to attack his private life or who he's sleeping with or where he's been the night before. I'm going to tell you why he broke it down. And don't insult my intelligence. If a guy throws it over a guy's head, instead of telling me he threw it over his head, tell me why. Where his feet in bad position. I mean, my preparation goes, the preparation of the good ones goes deep. You go deep into the heart of the game, learning every position, talking to people, getting information. Instead of just going on and say, well, when I played, here's what we did. After two weeks of that, nobody gives a damn if you played. They want to know if you're telling me something different from my fantasy team, what's going on and what's the game plan and why the hell did this guy do this and why is he going to do that? Right. And the reason why is it comes simply down, and I, I do believe it. I don't think many of them understand the mechanics of it. I don't think many of them prepare that hard. It's a nice paycheck. It keeps your face on the camera, and people love it. There's some really good ones. Boomer Esiason kicks ass. Yeah. He's opinionated. He doesn't care what others think. He prepares his butt off. And he states it on TV. He doesn't tell you something in the preparation room, in the, in the pre-meeting room, and then go on TV and doesn't say it. Boomer says it. Now, you may not agree with him all the time, but he says it. And Howie Long's been solid forever because he's prepared. But you can see the guys that aren't prepared that just read a newspaper article. But, I, you know, you call coaches and you talk to players and you protect your sources and, you, and, you, and you, you, you know, they'll tell you we're not going to do this. And you go on and tea. I mean, that's how you do it. If you're going to do it, you've got to do it great, just like you do your job. You've got to get sources. You've got to talk to people. You can't just go on and turn on the lights. The problem is we're hung up. We're, we're, star, we're star humpers is what we are mm-hmm. in network TV. We, a guy's a star on a Sunday. Oh, he gave me a good quote when he was playing. Let's throw him on TV, put a coat and tie on him. And about 13 minutes into the show, you're thinking, oh, hell no. Right. Oh, I can't watch this. Some are great. Some aren't. And some are natural at it. And some struggle with it. And you can tell the ones Michael Strahan puts his time in. Right. You can tell how he puts his time in. You can tell Boomer puts his time in. I love what Rodney Harrison's opinion does on Sunday night. There's guys, don't be afraid to tell the truth. And I learned one valuable, I learned a lot of valuable lessons. When my first few days at ESPN, I had an executive tell me this. He said, Sean, tell me something I don't know. Right. And, and, you, and the truth is, and that's, it's, it's a very fine line because I try to always talk I don't want to talk above the person who's an element, like a female that's just getting into football or a guy who'd never watched football and he's trying to learn it. And I don't want to talk below the expert. So if I'm talking, I always try to talk like a coach is watching 
yet always remember that his wife's sitting next to him. And, like, if I'm talking football and Bill Belichick, they turn these on, I'm not going to say something about the Patriots that Bill goes to his players. He's so full of crap, it's ridiculous. You want to make sure you've done it right and studied what they do so the person sitting next to the coach gets it, but the coach says, yeah, Sean did his homework. And the greatest, the greatest message I ever got, because Bill Belichick doesn't talk to many, mm-hmm. is I got a handwritten Christmas card from him one year at ESPN, written in his handwork about preparation and about uh, his appreciation. And the only reason I say that is because, man, I almost wanted to sprint around ESPN. I can't believe Bill Belichick wrote me a handwritten Christmas card. Right. It was kind of cool. So I was still like a kid at the candy store. But I know he appreciated how dedicated I was to my job. I'll tell you, my, uh, one of my greatest moments as a human being, uh, I'm not a vengeful person at all, but I was, uh, after I wrote a book on the Cowboys, I was on ESPN promoting it, and uh, Emmett Smith kind of unjustifiably just lit into me. And uh, then you fast forward a few years, and I'm watching Emmett Smith as a broadcaster, and he was, he was you know what it is? I was going to say painfully bad, but I actually, it's a word you actually use, and I think it's true. Like, much like in sports, when a guy is out of his league, like he was kind of exposed, you know, he was sitting next to Steve Young, who happens to be very good and very quick witted. And he was exposed. And I think that's one thing you see with people who are not prepared. You, you cannot hide when you're on TV. You can't. And just like you can't hide as a quarterback. And you know what? It's just the similarities are, it's the, can you process my information and my preparation as a football player in the classroom, walk out on the field and take the information I processed and apply it to game situations? The same thing here. Can I process information that I'm about to go on the telestrator and I'm about to talk about two different teams? And instead of preparing for one team, a lot of these guys forget that you're preparing for 32 teams. We're going to talk about all 32 during the week at ESPN when I was on, during NFL Live or SportsCenter. So can you process quickly and then all of a sudden when they re-tee you that you didn't prepare for, can you, oh my gosh, instead of panic, boom, hit the ground running because you're ready. You've got that in your library. And a lot of guys you know, just, just can't do it. And they're all over, and some do it great, you know. I mean, you, you hear some of them are, are really prepared, really opinionated, but you have to be able to process information, and you've got to spit it out in a hurry because we don't. it's not like radio or, or this interview where we can talk for an hour. I mean, you've got 48 live TV when it says off at 12 o'clock. That doesn't mean 12.01, and some guys don't. It's hard for them to understand the concept of it. That's why you see so many bodies in and out and so much turnover constantly, this. But we are enamored with, ooh, he's a star. So let's put him on TV. And then before you know it, without any reps, we've thrown him on an unbelievable show that's getting highly rated. And three shows into it, the guys, whoever it is, is in over his head and scrambling. And the network's thinking, how do we now make this subtle transition, wherever we are, to get him into another show that's not quite as visible or get him more work? I personally think that the tra- they, 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 before they throw you out there, I mean, I did a million hits at ESPN News, Jeff. Mm-hmm. And ESPN News is big now, but when it started, I mean, I'd go on there, and you could go on there for a half hour talking sports. You just keep talking, keep talking. And that's one of the, to me, that's one of the great avenues and mediums, part of the medium of the TV medium that ESPN had always had. And I learned so much for them, and I'm indebted to them forever for the opportunity and turning me into what I am and the preparation. But, man, a lot of it, my reps, even though I was doing sports center and NFL Live, in between those, I was hopping on ESPN those to keep getting reps. And I think every single new guy that rolls through there or anywhere else needs to go and do those reps before they throw you out there on Sunday countdown because you gave a good quote during a time when you were a player. That's just, it's, to me, it's, it, the, the preparation, you, you can't hide from it, and it, is, it will expose you in two seconds flat. Well, it's also the, the, the problem is, and it's sort of the, uh, I don't know, the fickleness or whatever of, of television sometimes is, um, you know, when I was covering baseball for Sports Illustrated, 
the first guys I would go to in the clubhouse were the backup catchers and the long relievers because they always had the best information. They were watching the game the closest um, and they were smart. And but those are like you kind of alluded to. Those are not the guys TV stations are hiring because it doesn't really seem like uh, sports networks are first and foremost concerned about conveying righteous information. They seem first and foremost uh, the priority is let's get this big net. We got, I'm not saying Ray Lewis, I think has made a pretty good adjustment, but we got to get Ray Lewis on there. We got to get Mike Orvin on there. I think Mike Orvin's good too, but, but we need the big name. We can't get, we're not going to get Clayton Holmes or Chad Hennings. We, that, that doesn't work for us, even if they may be smarter than these guys, because we need the big names. And I think it, Hey, and Ray and Mike, well, and you know, you mentioned two guys that bring energy and give you an opinion. Okay. They, the, the camera loves them and they're jumping through the camera and they're talking to you. They're talking to you right at home. Staring into that camera and getting after it. That's why Ray and Mike have been so good. And Ray is just starting out, and Ray's going to get better. But you're right. There's this, I mean, there's this, oh, my gosh, we're, like I said, we're so enamored with a superstar player. And you know what? The first time you put them on, people will tune in. But I got news for you. They will tune out faster if a superstar player can't tell me crap on a Sunday or a Monday. They are on a Wednesday. Fans will tune out faster saying, What? Then they will from a guy you didn't know that goes on there and they'll say, dang, who's that guy there? He's giving me some good information. Now, if you get the combination of both, like Troy Aikman, you get a, a guy who was a superstar quarterback, and now he's unbelievable in the booth with Joe Buck, well, God bless you. That's like having a combine freak and a great player on Sunday. I mean, okay. can do it all. But those guys are few and far between. But the ability, I mean, the, to me, we've got to transform where if you want to create, and if the networks want to create a star, they will. They'll turn a guy into a star. But... We've also got to start looking at, man, you know, that guy wants a backup or the backup tight end, but he's clever, he's quick-witted, he's prepared. And what I, for me, I wasn't one of those guys. I had to start out on the sidelines of college football, and I had to carve out a niche. This is the opinionated guy who will, is not afraid to, to jump in your throat, but also not afraid to compliment when nobody else will. And I mean, you had to carve a niche because I was never going to be given the Sunday countdown or Monday night football because I wasn't a superstar player. And they're always going to get the first look. But I'll tell you what. I'll take 10 backups that played that weren't household names that I've worked with and stick them against 10 superstars, and we'll fare, we, we, we'll fare quite, quite well in a competition on who could give the best information on TV. I'm not saying all of them, right. but I'm saying we wouldn't have to take a back seat because that's the great equalizer, preparation and opinion and passion. And if you've got those three things, you can pretty much chase down a superstar on TV. You know who's uh, – I have to say, this is neither here nor there, but I've been watching them more recently – the ESPN has been having Ryan Clark on a lot, the Steeler safety. That guy is good. I have, I've seen him. We have the monitors in our TV, in our radio studio, but I don't hear the sound. He's smart. See him, so I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I've heard him in interviews before, and he seems like a pretty sharp guy, and he's still got plenty of football to play, so it's nice that he's getting these repetitions and he's a good player. Yeah. But I have not heard him. I have seen him, but I have not been able to hear the audio on the sound. And I think he's probably, he seems to me to be pretty good. Now, he's not one of those guys that's a constant pro bowler. Mm-hmm. And he's another guy that'll do, if he comes out when he's done playing or what have you and carves his niche and gets going, there'll be a spot for him because he seems to be opinionated from what I've heard in his interviews. Mm-hmm. But I have not seen him. I've seen him on the set, but I have not been able to hear. And that's good to know that he, he's a guy that's uh, – it's impacted you early on just with his preparation and with his opinion. He's very good. So, um, Sean, before I let you go, we always do a uh, we always wrap this up with a rapid fire five questions. So I'm going to ask you five completely random, nonsensical, whatever questions and give me your quick answers. OK, OK. Number one, if he had never had drug problems, what kind of NFL quarterback could Todd Marinovich have been? Solid. Solid because he 
was trained to be a quarterback, solid quarterback. I don't think he'd ever been a superstar, and I don't think he would have been out of the league so fast. I think that, that the, 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 not just the drugs, but the way he was raised at times ended that career early. All right, who are the three best wide receivers you ever threw to? Chris Carter, Steve Largent, and probably, at, at my time, probably Anthony Carter. Uh, Chris Carter, Anthony Carter, Steve Largent. Former Michigan Panther of the USFL, Anthony Carter. Um, number three, in 1988, you uh, you won the Grey Cup for uh, the Blue Bombers, and you beat the BC Lions with a quarterback named Matt Dunnigan, who is a terrific CFL quarterback. And I kind of wonder, could that guy have played in the NFL? In this NFL, he might have been able to, because we, we Matt was shorter and a really strong arm. And a playmaker. He reminds he's a guy who could buy time. There would have been a place or at least a good tryout or somebody would have given him a long look now because we've kind of getting rid of this. We don't give 5'10", 5'11 guys a chance. But Matt was powerful and explosive with his legs and a hell of a passer. But we were at a time then when we weren't letting guys go in at that time. I mean, you know, in order to do it, there, 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 there was a stigma that followed it. But the breezes of the world and the Russell Wilsons got rid of that. Matt Dunnigan would get one hell of a tryout now because he was as competitive a player I played against in the CFL. Do you still have this? Isn't one of the five? But do you still have your? Do you ever flash the uh, CFL ring? You know what? It's been in. It's been wrapped and covered for years. <laughs> but everybody keeps telling me to bust it out. It's a really nice big ring, and you know what? I'm proud of it because it was a championship. Um, I, I think that I'm going to go get it out of storage and wear it every now and again. Nice. Now, 2005, you were uh, you were hired or brought in to teach Adam Sandler to look like a uh, quarterback for the longest yard. Uh, how daunting of a task was that? Well, I told them it was going to, when they first called me, that it was going to cost them a lot of money, and they had plenty. <laughs> I said, <laughs> if I could teach it, I tell quarterbacks I train all over the country now, which is my favorite job. Hmm. Um, I tell them if I can turn Adam Sandler into a player, I can turn anybody into a player. And Adam made about 80% of those throws in the movie. It's turned into one of my best friends. Daunting task, yes. But as a good actor and a guy who worked, Adam put in the time. One of my favorite, but actually one of my favorite pupils because of the effort he put in. It was awesome. Wow. All right. Final question. We give you, we'll give you a, a month to train. And right now we give you one start in the NFL. Uh, whatever. We'll get, we'll, let, we'll let you start for Seattle or Denver. Best team in the NFL, whoever it is. What do you do in that game? A month to prepare at my age. You give me only a month? <laughs> we'll give you a month and a half because you're a nice guy. Okay, give me six weeks to prepare. Uh, I can tell you this. Is if I didn't get hit, I could still throw it far and, and accurate. My mechanics are probably actually better now because of the way I train people. Mm -hmm. And I can think it better than I ever. I, 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 would, I would not misread in a defense, and I could make throws. The problem is it may take me a half an hour to set up in the pocket, so I'd have to be in the gun, and I pray that nobody even breathes on me because I do not want to get hit. I don't know if I'd fare very well. I could fare very well for a few plays. As long as they didn't hit me, I could make some throws and make some decisions. But after one hit, they'd be a heavy, I'd have to, the big fellows would have to carry me to the sidelines. I want absolutely no part of that. So no, uh, no naked bootlegs for uh, Sean Salisbury? You know, a naked bootleg without the ball. <laughs> if the other guy, I'll run right to the sidelines. You know what's interesting is they said, and we've always figured this out, is that just when you physically can't, do it anymore is when you mentally figure it out. Now, if you're Manning or Brady, you get to hang around longer, but most of us, just when we mentally figure out how to play this game, physically we can't do it anymore. Because if I know now, what I, if I knew then what I know now, damn, I might have been, been a different player. But 
I'm honored for the chance that I had to play anyway. I found it a privilege, not a right, so it was pretty awesome. Man, that was a uh, that was actually a very good euphemism for life. I mean, the truth of the matter is, you learned so many things along the way that you wish you knew when you were 23, and you just don't have them, you know? And when you got a second chance, use it and beat it down and take good care of it, which I'm doing now, so I appreciate it. Right. Well, listen, you can, uh, you can hear Sean uh, every day on Yahoo Sports Radio during the week, 4 to 8 slot. And, uh, you know, Sean, I really, again, I'm... Uh, I'm uh, tickled, a word I don't use that often, but but generally thrilled to see you back in the game and, and thriving. And, and I I appreciate you uh, you taking the time to, to be here on the Quazcast this week. I really do. Jeff, I'm honored. You know I'm a big fan of yours in a lot of different ways. And I will tell you this. When the interview we did back in 2012, after I read it, it helped me to look deeper into myself. And I'm being serious. Most times you don't. You don't read them or what have you. I read it, and I read it twice. And it kind of it, it helped change me and get me jump-started in to quit feeling sorry for myself and quit being reclusive. So I appreciate you, and I appreciate the honesty and the tough questions, too. And this was fun to go on, and I hope we get to do it again. All right, well, the Quazcast appears every week on thescore.com and can be downloaded on iTunes. I'm Jeff Perlman, and we'll, uh, we'll see you next week on another Quazcast. For more great interviews, subscribe to the Quazcast on iTunes. And you can follow Jeff on Twitter, at Jeff Perlman. Can't